Welcome to Descriptive. Uh, this is Khalil, and I'm here with my co-host Henning. Hey, how's it going? And today's guest is Ashley Williams. She is a speaker and a developer community and content manager at NPM. Welcome to the show, Ashley. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. So we always start with uh, one specific question, which is, how did you get started with programming slash computers? How did you get interested in it? Uh, so uh, I'm glad that you say programming slash computers because I'd, I'd probably say it really depends on what you what you consider programming when my origin story kind of starts. Um, I'd always been like very interested in math and like, very, like kind of early on around like age seven or eight, we had a computer downstairs in our basement that we were allowed to use. And so I very early on got excited about just being able to navigate DOS um, additionally, uh, in elementary school, they taught us logo. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that language. Nope. Nope. Okay. Logo. It, it's pretty neat. You have a little turtle in the middle of your screen and you give it instructions. And it's, when the turtle walks, it draws a line. And so, uh, basically you, it's, it's like drawing with a turtle. And one of the hardest things, you know, is to get the turtle to draw a circle, which really is just learning the math for how to describe circle. But uh, cool. so we started out with that. There was like a competition once. And when you drew the circle, that meant you like won the competition if you did it the fastest. So I did that and was very proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'd say that probably was like my very first uh, kind of programming experience. But then I was very lucky that kind of like throughout late elementary school, middle school, uh, we had computers that had HyperCard on them. Are you guys familiar with HyperCard? Heard the word. Okay, so so hypercard, it's 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 kind of like a language. It was kind of like an IDE. Basically, it it, it came out uh, on early Macs, and I'm not going to know the dates. I probably should have looked them up. Uh, but basically, basically, it was a way of like writing programs with. I think it was actually AppleScript, but it may have been some precursor to AppleScript, where you were like able to visualize the state of your program like using cards. Um. And I, I still think to this day it's one of the like most fascinating uh, kind of like introduction to programming tools that exists. There's a an emulator, and I can get you the link for this after this, that you can like play with HyperCard on like an emulated like Apple II in your browser, uh, and so that's really neat. <laughs> so is it the the kind of like cards with like lit literal cards, paper cards, or something like that with holes that you would use to program? No, no, no. no it, okay. it, it's 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 a it was a computer program itself, but it had okay. like it had the concept of a card, okay. so you could kind of understand things kind of like as a stack of index cards. Almost. Oh, um, it was like kind of a way you could think about like different states in your program. Interesting. Um, yeah, it, it gave it gave like a really novel way to like reason about like how a program should progress and like being able to go down and then come back up into things. What did so. you do with that? What did I do? Yeah. Like, it was like what did I build? Yeah. Gosh. Um, it's funny. I, I went back to my, uh, my parents' house like a, couple, uh, like a year ago and found all of these like little like three by five discs that say Ashley's Hypers on them. And I'm trying <laughs> to remember what on earth I read. I mean, like, like j the like just printing things to the screen, like little text adventures. I think, I think one of the, the exercises was like making a calculator. Um, nothing like little like toy applications, right. basically. Right. 
Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what, what's interesting is that I think my first interest in computers, honestly, and this is like kind of the hallmark of my childhood, was I wanted to be good at them because people assumed I wouldn't be. Oh, oh wow. How, how, did you, <laughs> how, how did you figure that? Um, I don't know. It, it was just some sort of, I guess, like precocious intuition. But I realized like very early on that if I didn't wear dresses and was good at math, like people just gave me a lot more respect. So huh. that's what I did. <laughs> like I always played like, you know, traditionally male sports um, and wanted to be good at math and science. And so like there was like just kind of like an epic like competitiveness, like chip on the shoulder of me. And that's why I was like, I'm going to be good at this because of that. <laughs> this is from your peers or your teachers or just in general, everyone? I think it's in general. I mean, I, I, I don't remember like being like, <laughs> like verbally reasoning about it. Uh, but I do remember just like feeling very strongly that that's what I needed to do. I mean, potentially it's like also pressures that came from my parents to like, just to be quote unquote successful. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> wow. like, that's like generally speaking probably why I was like attracted to them in the first place I mean I also just liked reasoning about things but I also knew that like pe people cared about me being good at that because it was strange hmm. <laughs> so so that means so when did when did that kind of that kind of drive kick in basically I mean, I think that was like very early on and it, it, it actually was, so what I was about to say was like there was a long period of me like doing computers and then finally when I got to college, I actually like didn't do as much and I think it's because I like stopped feeling like I needed to like prove to the world that I was like worthy mm. by like being good at these quote unquote like superior skills. Right. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> So what did you move into then in college as far as, right. you know, you said you stopped doing that. So what, what sort of replaced that? Totally. Uh, so I guess the first thing I will say is I did run the ITS help desk when I was at college at Wesleyan. Uh, so I was always doing computers, but I just kind of moved away <laughs> from programming. Uh, my, my major was uh, philosophy and neuroscience. Wow. So which... You know, a lot of people will be like, those two things aren't related, or like, those two things have nothing to do with computers, and I would just retort, like, I think they are both super related, and basically, it, they are computers, so. <laughs> it's just <laughs> cool. like a certain different type of processing, I feel like, but it's, it's very similar types of thinking. Well, can you explain that a little? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I, I kind of actually talk about this uh, in the conference talk that I guess potentially y'all saw. But uh, Dijkstra says, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically, like the the most like programmery thing that we do when we program is abstract, and when we are building abstractions, like that is what programming is. And so, I mean, for me, philosophy is literally the science of abstractions. Mm. <laughs> and so you could argue whether or not like that's logic or that's philosophy, but I tend to be of the type of person who thinks that philosophy is, is not, I'm not going to say better than logic, but it's a more accurate model of the world than logic because it includes history. So it's like building abstractions that aren't ahistorical, um, which is also very important for programming. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know if I quite understand that. 
Sure. So, <laughs> um, so you say uh, philosophy is basically the science of abstraction, right? That's what you said. Right. right. So the way I like to think about a philosophy is where philosophy is making claims about the world. And, and in making claims about the world, what they really do is they develop an ontology for describing and talking about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So philosophy is really language building, like DSLs, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to kind of understand, like, the bigger things or whatever. Right. Like, how things work and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and so we can see that in programming, we, we also do something very similar, like yeah. in order to be able to do like significantly more complex tasks. And how did you, and how do you tie in the history part? Ah, so there's kind of two splits. Like, so philosophy is kind of understood to have split, uh, where there's one tradition called continental and one is called analytic. And this is contentious and it's, it's not a clear split and people will argue about it. But generally speaking, what's to what you can we can understand from this is analytic philosophy believes that you can make truth claims. I guess you could say it believes that you can make truth claims, and it also believes that these truth claims uh, exist like outside of time, like are not historical. Like mm -hmm. something can be true like forever, mm -hmm. like or always already the case. Um, Whereas in the continental tradition, uh, time and, and history as things like progress and move, like because there's an understanding that truth is not absolute, like there's no like logically determined truth, uh, that it's always a product of something. And the way you can understand the product of something and it's most basic is the idea that like time passes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of a good argument for this is knowing like kind of the argument black lives matter versus the, the, uh, the, the all lives matter argument. Mm -hmm. All lives matter is an ahistorical claim. It's like, yes, all lives do matter. But black lives matter has a truth to it that's a result of history, which is that we need to call this out in specific uh, because of the certain like power structures that have happened over time. Right. And so... You can say all lives matter, but in doing so, you ignore history. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. And the and the neuro neurology part. Um, oh, the neuroscience part. The neuroscience. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, it's okay. There's a lot of words that start with neuro. Yeah. <laughs> they all mean something kind of specific. I'll say that the type of neuroscience that I studied is called behavioral neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So it's the type of neuroscience that attempts to go from, you know, electrical readings of neurons to the emergence of behavior. Um, that's a really big jump. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and so it's fascinating. Um, and I ended up kind of like, one of the reasons that I really liked neuroscience is like, I liked thinking about what, what the, the structures are that cause like, our philosophical ideas or abstractions to emerge. So I like to say that I like to think about thinking. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I actually wrote my thesis uh, using uh, several of my favorite philosophers to critique <laughs> the behavioral neurosciences, like kind of ontology, where like 
because we didn't have good categories and names and consistent categories and names for things that were being studied and experimented on in behavioral neuroscience, it was very difficult to talk about progress or it was a slippery slope to talk about progress because like we were making serious category errors across experiments. And so how you could use philosophy in science to try and fix those category errors. Okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I Sorry if it gets you nerdy there. <laughs> I don't know what you just said, honestly. <laughs> it's okay. We can talk about computers now if you want. No, no. just one thing about the, uh, uh, the cool. thinking about thinking when you say neuroscience, is that on, on what sort of, sort of level is that? I mean, um, like you were saying how, um, you know, I guess the neuro... Like, can't remember now exactly what you said, but the neurons cause, or how, how that causes action, or, or how that causes thought, is it right. that low down? So or is that's, it I mean, neuroscience, that's, like, that's where you start. So one of the things that I was most fascinated in in college and like really gripped on was like, this was kind of during the emergence of the idea of face neurons, where people are like, there are specific neurons in your brain that respond to like specific faces. And in my head... Like, that seemed super inefficient to me. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a system that would work for all of the complexity that can emerge from the human brain, right? And so the behavior there is recognizing faces, uh, and then you, like, drop down all the way to, like, neurons' behavior. And so I was very fascinated with the idea of coordinated, like, patterns of activation in the brain and like those patterns being from where things emerge, not the idea that you have uh, like a direct mapping between like an individual cell and like a memory. And so okay. those were like ideas that happened. And so you could kind of think of it as like people had like a very object oriented view of the brain and how it worked and that I wanted something more procedural or more functional. And so I paid a lot of attention and studied to studied like the research that was like attempting to like create systems like that to describe how the brain worked okay now because that's all you know obviously completely foreign to me i just i was curious as to what you know is even known at this point at that level so yeah it's very cool. interesting yeah. uh i would there's a a really cool computer scientist slash neuroscientist named robert kerr who gave a presentation at uh conference i was at reject.js and uh He's created some visualization software that's actually able to like show you like quite a bit of like at least where we can start trying to figure out what how things are happening. Okay, cool. <laughs> so ba and so basically that kind of maps onto like how a computer works also a little bit like neural. Well, oh, yeah. uh, well, no, no. Were you going to say neural networks? Uh, no, I don't know. Neuroscience, uh, neurons like uh, maybe the computer and then the actions are what, what the outcome is of whatever you program or something like that. Or how would you kind of map that on, on each other? Because you said it's yeah. kind of related to it. or Definitely. So the reason, and so that there is that way, and like a lot of people are trying to do that with like AI, this is the idea of like neural networks, which in neuroscience means something different than in computer science, mm -hmm. uh, which is like a little confusing but the type of thinking that I loved about neuroscience that I think really prepared me for doing programming, especially like architecture stuff, is the ability to like reason about systems 
and then being able to derive like what the most efficient like organization of that system should be to like produce the like effects or the complexity that you're looking for. Um, ah, okay, that's interesting. And so that's that's what I really loved. Like the thinking that you have to do in neuroscience ends up, or at least during the type of neuroscience I was doing, uh, was very similar to like you know doing application architecture. Hmm. Cool. Especially when you start thinking about distributed systems, like the. I am able to reason about distributed systems probably only due to like my introduction to distributed systems via like theories of the brain and neuroscience. And why is that? So do, does it do they work distributed as well? Well, so I just like I, I think reasoning about distributed systems is like very difficult, mm -hmm. especially if you're reasoning about a system that has something that you can't, like, it has an effect that you, like, can't necessarily relate to or, like, a behavior. Whereas, like, trying to think about how the brain works in the distributed, as a distributed system to create an, a, a behavior that you're familiar with because you, like, do it because you have a brain um, yeah. uh, made, made it, like, a little bit more concrete for me. And I was just, like, I, also it was, like, just particularly, like, I was, like, felt very motivated to, like, try and understand how those things worked in the, like, neuroscience ontology and so because I like had that grasp of it coming from you know a completely different field jumping in and seeing how it was like being used in computer science like I felt like I had a whole area to like like gain like drive like pull information from because I had already like studied it just in like a different uh vertical yeah cool so is there is there like can you give like an example of how Neuroscience helped you with our computer or ar programming architecture. So um, gosh, I should have prepared one of these. I'm trying to think. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, so I guess a couple of the things that you can think about is so one of the ways people study neuroscience because it's brains and you can't just open them up without like kind of hurting them uh, is they do studies <laughs> with people who have deficiencies. And so one of the things that became very clear very early on was our brain was extremely plastic and actually very fault tolerant. Mm. It was like able to like, you know, do lots of things, even when you took like a whole chunk out. Mm. And like it was also able to relearn things very quickly. Mm. And so uh, this kind of like flies in the face of like certain things being like, this part of your brain does this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, like it's like, all right. And so what I think when we think about computer architecture is again instead of thinking like there's this one like kind of unreusable chunk of like functionality and instead like you know spreading it across like a bunch of generics and composing them like that makes your application like extremely more fault tolerant and makes it more flexible um like just that idea alone like going from one paradigm to the other mm. i could say that like yeah. the brain is like very modular in that sense um and so I'm a big fan of of, of tiny little modules. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. I know that not everybody is, but I don't know. Maybe it's the JavaScript in me. I hear it's a JavaScript thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a Node thing. <clears throat> yeah, I guess I'm more of a Node person, anyways. Client side code is hard. <laughs> and also, so you're you're landing at the in the right place at npm if you're interested in that. I guess. <laughs> right. Absolutely. The tiny <laughs> Okay, um, cool. Uh, so, did you, so, so you, did you, like, uh, when you were in college, like, you just, you, you did that, um, what was it, IT? 
kind of yeah so I, yeah i basically ran the like your computer is broken and you need it fixed desk okay. <laughs> <laughs> um so why was that did you fall into that or what, what, did you really want to do that because you wanted to <laughs> deal with computers yeah well, i mean i like working with computers and i knew it could fix them i just i knew i needed a job right and i knew that this was like i mean not everyone got to work there like you had to apply there were only so many positions <laughs> And so, like, I was like, I could make a fair amount of money doing this because I already know how to do it. And, you know, college is expensive, so I needed money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Well, something that was fun that came out of it, though, was there was a, what they called the server at my university. Uh, and I got to inherit it because I was the only person at the help desk who understood Linux or could, like, use it at all. So, and basically what the server was, was a cardboard box held together with beer wrappers and it had like this little hard drive on it that we connected to the internal network and it had two applications on it. One of them was basically like a homespun, like DC++, like file sharing uh, server where basically like people could look up movies and music or whatever else they cared to look up on other people's computers and download them. Uh, and then the other thing was, are you guys familiar with the application Bang with Friends? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so basically, um, <laughs> it was called Westmatch, and we ran it during the senior week uh, at, at school. And basically, all of the seniors were able to list all of the people that they wanted to hook up with. And then <laughs> if those other people listed them, they got an email. <laughs> Um, and so these were the two very excellent, you know, genuine, good programs that I like, helped maintain on the server. They were both written in Perl, uh, which is funny. So, yeah. Uh, and what was sad is that a month before my senior week, where we would get to use this great program or whatever, my boyfriend kicked the box and broke it. No. Uh, and then it very quickly became the most hated person on campus. <laughs> Oh you had imp important program there, I guess. <laughs> yes. uh, but that's actually where my Twitter handle comes from, because to be able to access that server, people typed in agwilliams.stu, S-T-U, uh, on the internal network. So people started calling me AG, AGW, and then it got shortened to AGdubs, ah, which okay. people often are like, what's your handle? What is that? <laughs> like, oh, it's my initials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need... Uh, I actually figured that out at some point, but I needed some time. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, cool. And so, uh, is that what you did? Is that all you did in college then? So you did the, the IT admin thing and, and you did your studies? I did lots of studying. I was, I was very into it. One of the things that I loved about my university, and I think this is true of some places, but is generally not true, is like the cool kids that partied the hardest also studied the hardest. Hmm. So uh, there was like a lot of like very late nights where we would just be like staying up like reading Foucault or like we're doing our set theory homework like and like drinking and like that was the culture. <laughs> and it was it was strange, uh, but I really liked it. It was like everyone was just like really excited about learning stuff there, which was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, consequently set theory was basically the hardest class i ever took and i'm still like pretty bad at it i wish i was better <laughs> right and okay so so what did you so what did you did you do, did you do after 
Right. So, as I said, my <laughs> my story is very discordant because immediately after graduating from college, I did the New York City Teaching Fellows Program and taught middle school science in Harlem for three years. Wow. <laughs> so, now <laughs> for something that, completely how different. How did you go to that? <laughs> um, how did I go through Yeah, this? like how, where does your interest in teaching come from? Right. Uh, so maybe it was because I just grew up in a culture that like valued academia so much, but just teachers were like what I like had like the most respect for. And so they were like who I always looked up to. Um, and generally speaking, because I, I often did well and just had like an interest in certain subjects and usually a lot of subjects that some people don't know a lot about. I just spent a lot of like, especially social time, like explaining things to people. And I also found that in explaining things to people and in teaching things, I would learn new things myself. Um, additionally, as part of like my philosophy degree, uh, one of the best things one of my professors ever said to me was the hardest thing you can do in philosophy like the hardest thing to do is actually say anything <laughs> like when you're writing a paper to like have any meaning at all. Um, and realizing that your ability to explain all of your assumptions, to, to go through all of your thoughts in like a rigorous way, like th this is what like teaching is to me. And so I just loved the feeling of doing that, of like basically like being able to like reason about something in a way that like I can get those thoughts <laughs> to, to other people and they can reason back with me and we can like speak about it in the same language. Um, yeah, that's so really that cool. Is that <laughs> something that you, um, cause you said you looked up to teachers or you, you know, you admired them. Is that, cause that's not something that I experienced, um, like from my peers in college, for example. Um, I thought I had this this teacher that was um, part of the. She was um, basically a scientist that helped you know us land on the moon, and uh -huh. she was part of the program that um, did a bunch of sort of crash tests to to land things on the moon. And her class was so awesome, and she would mm -hmm. share you know her experience from that. But um, people didn't appreciate it. It's like you know they shot yeah. off. Here she goes again, and I was like. Come on, people. You know, so I was just curious if that uh, oh, yeah, is, so is, is I, a general thing. I don't think it's a general thing. And, I mean, you can just look at the United States educational system to see that the general idea is that teachers are lazy. Mm -hmm. um, they only work half the year, and they make too much money, and they don't care about <laughs> kids learning, uh, which is all, like, complete garbage. Like, oh, my yeah. goodness. I could just go on for days about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that that sometimes happens because there are like preconceptions that both a lot of teachers and a lot of students have about learning and how it's supposed to happen. And when those misconceptions exist on either end, uh, there's like, a, you know, a mismatch and the experience can be very bad. And a lot of times, especially as a learner, if you're struggling to learn, uh, it, it, you, it, it can be very frustrating if you, if you don't have somebody who knows how to, to, to help you and, and therefore you can 
you know, blame your teacher or blame yourself. And like, of course, having bad feelings about your own learning is not going to make you terribly excited about people who use, do it as a profession. <laughs> yeah. So would you say that you, you just had like some really, really good teachers and had good experiences because of that? Or you were just generally always interested in learning? Um, so I guess something that you might be hearing from me is like, I don't believe there's any sort of intrinsic anything. This is one of my theories <laughs> of the brain. And so it, it's all like very much derived from personal experience. And yeah, so I'd say, I'd say I, I had some very good teachers growing up. That doesn't mean that I didn't have some awful teachers or teachers where like our learning styles did not vibe. Uh, and because that was definitely true, but I think also I just, my parents were very much like into school and like teachers and learning. And so I also had like a lot of self teaching happening like pretty early. Like, okay. That was something that I like enjoyed doing. It was like, let's yeah. learn how to do this now. <laughs> no, cause it's a very useful thing to that experience that you described, you know, how you like to teach other people and therefore you learn yourself. That is something very useful and, and probably has come in handy a lot. So It, it absolutely good. has. And I don't know if we're there in the timeline of my origin story, but I have a, a pretty interesting story about that. So okay. maybe we should just jump to it. All right. For, but for, before we do that, <laughs> uh, I just would like to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, I know. What is, what age are the kids in middle school? Because... Oh, I'm in yeah. Germany. I don't know the the U.S. system. And Actually, middle school doesn't exist in part of the U.S. too. Um, okay. So I taught in a school actually that was from pre-K to eighth grade, and it was in a neighborhood that is not very good. Passing rates are very low, so people in eighth grade could be anywhere from I would say like I think it's like 13 to 16. Wow. Um, okay. so like sixth through eighth is like kind of like 10, 10 to 16, basically during puberty right. when everyone smells and uh, acts their best. <laughs> right. that's, that's, that's exactly. That's what I was, I was wondering. <laughs> like you weren't not in the greatest area teaching and then p kids in puberty. So how did you, how did you manage that? That must've been quite rough too. So the first year I managed it really poorly. I would just cry like every, I was, it was really bad. Um, I would be like so wound up. I was teaching up in Harlem that uh, my partner at the time, he'd be like, you can't come home like right away. You're like too, too much you have to. So I would walk home all the way through Central Park like every day as like, oh, cool down period. Hmm. So like get out of that frustration. Um, But it, it, one of the biggest problems, I think, is just uh, classroom management. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And they teach you classroom management. Or the, when, when I was like going through my accelerated program for doing this, they teach you uh, a couple of things, but you know, like setting rules and then like explaining rules to students. Um, just like very kind of like, like almost like parenting kind of stuff and what it took me a year it took me a very long year but what I discovered was two things one is engaging students is the best form of classroom management like if they're excited about learning or whatever task they're doing they're probably not going to be like dicking around doing something else mm -hmm. and so a lot of people who are new spend so much time on classroom management when they really should just be making their lessons more interesting um, yeah <laughs> And then the Pretty other much. thing I did was that 
uh, nobody likes being talked to like a condescending adult. Mm-hmm. And it just makes you want to not listen more. And so I kind of became the the sassy middle school girl I never was. Uh, <laughs> and so like if someone's messing around in your class, like classically you're supposed to be like, hey, you are interrupting your and other people's learning. Like you should stop. And it's like that doesn't work at all. Instead what you do is you pause for a little too long till everyone's like, oh, God, what's going on? And you just like look at the person and go, ew. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a second year I had kids lining up at my door to eat lunch with me? And the management was like way better. I mean, I also lit like a hundred dollar bill on fire the first day. Like just, you know, yeah, it turns out people like cool things. And if you're just like cool and exciting, then there you go. So cool. (laughs) I think that's awesome that you figured that out because this is like, I, I remember from school and I feel so bad about some of the teachers that I had because I was in a class that was pretty bad. I was also bad and stuff during that period of in time where like 17, 16, 15, whatever. And, um, and, but there were different teachers and I often thought about this. Teachers that really were able to handle their class really well and then teachers that were always, um, they kind of got beat up by the kids and they yep. never figured out and over years and years and years and years like they yeah. got older and older and they did not figure it out there were other teachers in the same school that knew how to do it though and it, it was so like you know it was so sad uh looking back it's so sad that they went through their life like that you know like sometimes yeah. crying in the hallway stressful. and stuff yeah yeah yeah. So I think I think in the in the school systems now they're spending a lot more time trying to get teachers to learn from each other. I think mm-hmm. that for a lot of times like teachers were like very siloed and like cooperation and engagement between teachers was something that was not supported and is now something they're definitely trying to work more on. Uh, mm. So I think that would definitely improve things because it's it's terrible to like be struggling with something and have the teacher in the classroom next to you like doing an awesome job at it and having this kind of like simple solution but you have no idea what it is. Yeah. Because totally. the kids see all of it, and they're like, I don't know why like Miss Billy doesn't just do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, well, she doesn't do it, so I'm just going to go crazy now. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Now it's time to just totally wild out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And also, then there was this other thing where some people, uh, after school, they didn't really know what, after high school, they didn't really know what they wanted to study. And some of them just said, oh, I'm just going to become a teacher. And then there were some of those people that I was thinking, you totally underestimate what is coming for you you know yeah like sometimes they were just not thinking about how the kids are you know it's just kind of this romanticized version of kids teaching kids or something like that yeah it's, yeah. it's dangerous i mean the thing is is that we need to understand in education that it's not like a top-down experience really it's not like the teacher talking down to the students like at every second teaching is a very equal conversation <laughs> yeah and so, like, if you're not, like, listening and, like, getting feedback from students and, like, responding and especially responding quickly, like, that it, it's going to work very poorly for everybody involved. So yeah. a lot of people think that they can just kind of lecture. And we still, well, we still see this a lot in, like, the American university system. And this is why a lot of alternative programs are starting to, like, kind of beat out the university system because that lecture model has been shown over and over again to be just totally awful. For learning it's like yep. just not good so <laughs> okay cool so so what was the story you wanted to tell 
All right. So this story, it actually makes me, it, it, it's, it's like kind of like a very intimate story for me. And I held off telling it to people for a very long time because I was afraid that people would think that I was like, I don't know, somehow think that like my skills in programming were somehow worse after hearing the story. But I realized that that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> so after I was a teacher, I ended up moving back to New York. I worked as a technical product manager at this startup. And then one day the startup just like, they were like, we sold the company. You have no like severance. Take your stuff. Go. It's the end. I was like, oh, great. Uh, and I've been doing like a fair amount of technical stuff. I mean, like I was like writing Cucumber. I was like, you know, doing a bunch of styling stuff. It was a, a, mobile, <laughs> a mobile platform startup. And I ended up actually getting to work with Rebecca Murphy, which was amazing. And she ended up mentoring me quite a bit. Uh, anyways, we were, we were doing PhoneGap. We were like, they were like one of the first companies using PhoneGap. Mm -hmm. But so after that, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Now I'm living on unemployment. I was a teacher, but now my license, I'd have to like get a new license. And I, that's going to take a lot of money and time. I don't have the time and money. I guess I'm doing this tech thing. Why don't I become a developer? Why don't I like finally like go back and like really do this programming thing? I'd like taken AP computer science in high school twice because I got to do it in C++ and Java. Um, very fun. I was very cool in high school, obviously. Uh, <laughs> my boyfriend's dad was the teacher. That was, like, super weird. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to become a developer. And this was, like, right when these boot camp programs were kind of popping up. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm on unemployment. I could maybe do this boot camp program and stay on unemployment and, like, be able to make it, Right. Maybe I could do this. And so a boot camp program called the Flatiron School kind of was like advertising. And I was like, okay, I'm going to apply. And they were like, this is like, you know, very competitive. We're only going to take so many people. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to do my best and figure it out. So I applied and uh, I got rejected. I didn't get in. And I was like, shoot. And I was like, but I, I had already decided that like what I wanted to do was like be a developer. And so basically what I did is on my unemployment, I taught myself how to program. Uh, I used uh, Eloquent JavaScript by Martin Haverbeek, which was like amazing. And so I think I've, it's, it's, it's in like the old Boku office now, but I have this like super marked up, like beaten up, like coffee spilled on it, copy of this book. And the way I taught myself was Code Academy was around and it was right when you could start writing your own curriculum. And so basically I wrote an entire course in JavaScript <laughs> while teaching myself JavaScript about how to build an alarm clock like simulator program and then it turned into like a morning simulator program and uh, so I did that I didn't even know like test suites really existed so I ended up like basically writing my own testing framework for my curriculum <laughs> like I did a lot of really goofy things and I guess this is public and I, I guess you could go read the code but it's actually on my GitHub is one of the earliest like things I've committed. It's called Rise and Shine. It's pretty silly. Uh, but the interesting part of this story is, is that within that year, uh, after being rejected by the Flatiron School, I was hired as their first, like I was their first teacher hire a year after that. <laughs> That's so awesome. I went from being a rejected student to the lead instructor. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's so, awesome. yeah. How did that that's... happen, though? So you just applied to to being a teacher, teacher there? Uh, no, I was, um, 
they like somebody who worked there uh like knew that I had started like kind of teaching some side classes at a couple of like other programs like in the city mm-hmm. you know and they reached out to me and they didn't realize that they had rejected me as a student until like, I think like six months in we were having like a team dinner and everyone had had a couple of drinks <laughs> and I just I just was like hey you know I thought I might mention <laughs> And it, they were like really shocked, and then they also were like, "We've got to check our admissions and how we're doing." <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was like that. Pretty much like that year was the year like that was very serious, and I basically either sat in like my little apartment or went to this coffee shop every day, and I would just work, 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 and then. But so you said while you were learning, you were actually writing a curriculum for a class? So it's, it's fascinating, of course. Like, I was just like, I've always been in just this teacher mindset, and I always knew that you needed to reinforce concepts. And so during the day, I would like learn concepts and do exercises and build little programs. But like as a wrap-up, I would basically write a curriculum like module for the things I learned that day. Wow. Uh-huh. And like add it, and so it was like this is like a weird growing project, and like the project is like super strange. <laughs> I look back at the code and I'm just like, wow, this is this is interesting. Uh, but it it was like a super like good way because basically I have a written portion where I like in words describe what's going on, and then I have like the code to test it, the actual code, like a prompt, and then like the answer, uh, and. It, it, that was just like a, a really amazing way for me to like be sure I really understood the concept. That's amazing. I mean, to have the discipline to do that because, I mean, that's, you know, obviously how you get a deeper understanding. But most people like me just learn it and move on. I don't don't go that extra step, which would you know really really help. But uh, that's that's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it comes kind of from, like, that little Ashley that had the chip on her shoulder. After I was rejected from the boot camp program, I was like, you don't think I can do this, huh? <laughs> well, let me tell you something. <laughs> Very cool. So That's awesome. Okay. So, <laughs> so you, become, uh, you became leading teaching instructor? Yeah. So, I mean, when I was first hired, I was literally the only person except the, so the Flatiron School was founded by two people, uh, Adam and Avi. Adam was uh, kind of the business guy and Avi was what he called eventually Dean, but he was the primary teacher. When they hired me, uh, they had a TA and then the idea was that I would be like kind of co-teaching with Avi. And then then what happened is they got funding from New York City to do a program in Brooklyn called the New York City Web Development Fellowship, where all of the students who went had to make less than 40K or be unemployed. Uh, and then the program was free to them, and I ran that program. What does so, that mean? What do you mean? <laughs> what, is that, what does it entail to run a program oh, like that? <clears throat> write the curriculum, organize the curriculum, grade exercises, teach all day. <laughs> yeah. So the, the program is like, you know, quote unquote, nine to five, but usually longer than that, uh, Monday through Friday. Cool. And what did you teach? Like, uh, was it also JavaScript? What you taught? Right. So actually the program was 
primarily when I came in, it was a Rails program. So basically they started with like a little bit of Ruby, a little bit of GitHub, and they taught Rails. Mm -hmm. uh, I entered and I was like, okay, I don't think we should be just teaching Rails. I think we should teach quite a bit of Ruby first, and then Rack, and then Sinatra, and then Ruby. Mm -hmm. uh, or, and then Rails. Right. And so adding that to the curriculum. And then the Brooklyn program was significantly longer, and so in addition to that curriculum with the Rails, I also taught uh, JavaScript, and then like an intro to jQuery, D3, and Angular, just so that they had like an idea of what what does a JavaScript framework look like, and like what are the things about JavaScript they need to know, like closures mostly, and like things that are not necessarily things that you could infer from knowing Ruby. Cool, and I don't know if you already said that. How long did like one program go for somebody who got in there for free because they were unemployed, for instance? Uh, I believe the entirety of the program ended up being six months long. I'm looking it up now. Because okay. I may... Have. Yeah, because they do it in 12, 22... Yeah, so it was 22 weeks. So I think it's a little bit less than six months. Yeah. Yeah. And so did, did were people then able to get hired as junior developers after that? Right. So one of the things that the Flatiron School does that I think is really awesome that some other programs don't, and again, there's still I, I have a lot of criticisms of bootcamp programs, is they focus very strongly on hiring, and they have like a hiring partnership program, and basically they stick with you until you get a job. Oh, so like wow. it's it's very much like a handshake, and like part of the reason that the city of New York wanted to do this was that it was a, it's a jobs incentive program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. One of the things that you do need to look at with these types of things is how long people stay in the jobs that they get. I think retention generally is like difficult and a lot of a lot of technical companies are still trying to figure out how to support junior developers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's like tricky. Uh, but yeah, everybody unless like I think there's been like maybe like two or three students that I can think of in the course of all of being at Flatiron School where things didn't work out with getting them a job and it had all there were like very extenuating circumstances involved in that. <laughs> and like it 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 was only decided after like a year at least of support that like we would like break our relationship. Like okay. there's like there's like an intense commitment to like you're making an investment in us and we're making an investment in you type of thing. Right. Literally the business model and this is something that's nice about how Flatiron School does it, that they only make money if companies hire the students and they make the money on like recruitment fees. So okay. the incentives are aligned, which mm -hmm. is like generally positive. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome. Oh so, yeah. 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 Cool. I mean that, that could, like you could think that, um, so I, I'm pretty sure, or I would assume it wasn't like that, but if they, if their incentive is to get people hired because they make a fee of that, they could also have like be incentivized to get people through as fast as possible and then not do a good job at teaching them and then get them hired right but that's of course not what what they did yeah i mean, the the length of the programs if has if has if anything only gotten longer as far as i know right. <laughs> yeah. um rushing them through i mean cuz again that's like looking at retention like you're not going to see hiring partners like continue to hire from you if you're not providing them with like people who have the skills for the job yeah exactly yeah <laughs> makes sense yeah yeah that's awesome so so did that was that uh, like a rewarding feeling for you to do that 
Uh, so that was like probably one of, so the, the cool thing about this, this story is like basically my first job, like officially as a developer was really as a teacher yeah. of development. And I, I can't tell you enough how much deeper my understanding of all of web development has been as a result of, of doing this teaching. Hmm. Um, I, I like to say this, so, uh, there's this French cartoon that's quoted in this, this presentation that I really love called Thinking for Programmers that says, writing is nature's way of letting you know how sloppy your thinking is. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say teaching is nature's way of letting you know how sloppy your understanding is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so you think you know something until someone starts asking you questions about it. And what's amazing about beginners is they don't ask you the questions that you expect. They ask you all sorts of questions. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. so like, they are like edge case like detectives. Like they will ask you like the strangest edge case thing. And like, you need to know the answer. You need to know how. And so you end up like, a lot of your learning goes from like, kind of like practical knowledge and facts to like a fully holistic understanding of the system. Because only when you have a holistic understanding of a system are you able to like reason about any particular edge case someone might be able to ask you. Mm. Because you like have the faculties of like understanding how that would proceed. Um, and so yeah, I, I ended up like just, I, I feel like I learned like an intense amount uh, of things. And that was like really great. And another thing that was like really fun is all the students like eventually like build products um, like they form teams and they have they build like kind of a larger project at the end mm -hmm. and so in the time that maybe one person would be doing like architecture planning for an end of like one project I was doing like app architecture for like eight projects like simultaneously <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and so it, it's 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 interesting how like redoubled your your experience can be when you're when you're leading like other people like along that path of learning, just like the practicing that happens. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> so what what came after that? Uh, so after that, uh, I went to a company called Boku, uh, which calls itself an open web consultancy company. Uh, they work on like kind of like three things. Uh, education, consulting, and community. And so I was brought on to like help them work on both their consulting offerings and their uh, like public education offerings. And I also did a lot of work helping them run conferences and stuff. That's so awesome. I had actually never written Node <laughs> before I joined that company. And basically all I write now is Node. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was that was a really uh, a really like a good learning experience there. I, it was it was basically so I had gone from an experience where as the teacher I was probably like the most advanced person in the room teaching beginners to a company where everybody who works there is like a very advanced and well known developer, and so I was able to kind of like benefit from then being the student, uh, and so that was like really excellent. So did you do mostly teaching at Boku as well? Um, so I did a lot of teaching, but a, a lot of what I did was, uh, kind of also like curriculum building and organization. Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, I also did like a fair amount of development. Like it, I did some consulting as a part of it as well. So it was like very much like a grab bag of activities. <laughs> That's cool. 
I think one of the coolest things that came out of it, and this is an open source project that has not had a lot of love in the past couple of months, but I think the, the group of people I'm working on it and I are going to like kind of rekindle that this, this fall and winter is a project called Endpoints, uh, which is a, a hypermedia framework for Node for basically like building hypermedia APIs in Node. Uh, something that, that occurred to me when I was like working at Boku and building things like, and also both teaching Node and building things in Node was, is it, is it really ethical to, to ship something like in production in Node? Because the tooling is so naive right now. <laughs> and especially as a consultant, like you're looking at teams that often have a lot of churn, like teams that would benefit from something that had like a strong convention and strong opinions. And Node is like the wild west right now regarding that. And so this framework kind of came out of being like a, I, I, I want to say it's like inspired by the, uh, the way Rails implements opinions. And like, so like the, the dream of Rails is alive in endpoints, but the implementation is not as it's like very much like a hyper modular, like very small, like no craft, like very little boiler type of, of framework. Mm. <laughs> Can you explain for people who might not know what hypermedia is? Sure. Um, <laughs> so this is, is it, it, it lacks a little bit of subtlety, but the way I like to say it is hypermedia is a fancy word for putting links in your JSON response. <laughs> okay. So yeah. basically that you can have self-discovering um, APIs or you can have clients that can discover it. Is that, that's what it's for, right? Yeah, you, that's yeah. perfect. Exactly. Yeah. So, so one of the, the very cool things about, about hypermedia is um, it, it stops you from needing to hard code so many things on the client. Uh, and so it, it, it allows you to be able to update your, your response and your API and like your client is able to understand the the resource or entity that it's getting like based on like the relationship of attributes and not necessarily like needing to have um, like a, a URL like hard coded in. And how, how does this framework sort of set itself apart or you know how does it yeah um, so I mean so one of the, we we chose the hypermedia standard called JSON API which has such a generic name, it might just sound like an official standard as if there's not other ones. Um, it might just be good marketing, who knows? Uh, and so we're one of the first frameworks that's coming with JSON API out of the box. Uh, since that's happened, uh, Ember's REST client is now JSON API out of the box. Um, and there's some, some other things that are like implementing that. Uh, so, but w what's nice is that this the the framework like uh, it means that you're not going to be bike shedding whatever your JSON response is is to like have a framework that's like here's what you're going to get and like it automatically just format it formats it like that for you it's uh it saves you a lot of time I think formatting JSON responses is something that people writing APIs spend a lot of time doing and it's not super valuable. Yep, it's a huge time sink. Uh, so and I mean, how, additionally, uh, oh go ahead. sorry. I guess the other thing I was going to say is that it also focuses on kind of like a component-based hierarchy uh, as opposed to like a file system, a file type-based hierarchy. And this is kind of like where we diverge from Rails a little bit. Like it's not like a folder with controllers, a folder with models. Like you basically can have like an individual directory that's like just for your resource and has everything that it needs inside it, including the schema, the model, any sort of like controller stuff you want to do. And that way you can reuse 
the modules. Um, and something I do all the time. It's very useful, I think. Also, in this sense, it also is self-describing. Whenever I'm looking at an API, I want to open it up and be like, okay, what resources does this serve? And building something in a framework like this allows you to just open up that folder and be like, okay, these are the things. Like, is there is there some kind of um, language that you can use to, um, I guess, sort of describe what the what an endpoint is supposed to look like, what the resource looks like, and then it then generates um, possibly code for you, or is it still pretty much handwritten? You decide. No, uh, it, it it very much so. Our understanding is that like when you're building an API, lots of APIs are primarily like just CRUD actions. Mm-hmm. And so it it assumes that like that's exactly like that you automatically want those things, and those are all like taken from like base models. Um, so you don't have to rewrite all of those things. And uh, there's like a route builder, so you can basically like declaratively specify any sort of other routes you might want. Um, and it like it automatically gives you cred functionality. Okay, so you so you you basically define or declare what what your model looks like, and it it'll you say I want post put get and all that on there, and it'll pretty much build that for you. Yep, so. and then additionally, it also like puts <clears throat> like um, the idea of like including related resources, which is something that also kind of is in the JSON API spec. Um, it automatically uh, has like a declarative language for helping you do that, as well as like filters and things. Mm-hmm. Wow, very nice. And and in what sort of uh, stage is this right now? <laughs> it's it's. I would not say not JSON API. I mean the the framework that. Oh you, right right. Uh, it's definitely pre one point Okay. We were like really really close, and then it's been like kind of like four months since we've like really done anything with it because everybody got super busy. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I continue to like. I don't like writing APIs without it. It's like I find it like really useful. I don't know if that's a sign of a good tool or just like I'm really into myself. It's unclear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's something that um I, yeah. I actually use Ember and I, I wanted to get to, to JSON API on all my backend work. But that's been one of those things that the adoption, I think the best one or the thing that you hear about the most still is is the Rails implementation of it. Like those guys were or had really good tooling from the very beginning, um, but uh, I'm in PHP land and that's sort of lagging <laughs> behind. And I didn't know what the status status was in, in in JavaScript, so that's interesting to hear. Yeah, so that's something that we're working on. And I mean, what's really interesting also is that, I mean, so the code is open source and it's written in such a modular way that you can just like steal portions of it. And so there's been like projects I've worked on, like especially for Mozilla, where they're like, oh, we don't know if we want to use like a non 1.0 framework yet. And I'm like, I totally get that. And instead, what I do is I basically like steal the code from endpoints and just build it as internal libraries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just because Sneak I, I just feel like, yeah, reduce the redundancy. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I have yet to like run into a node framework that's like, like, I don't know if you guys have heard of like sales. Or, yeah, um, I find that frustrating. But that's also because, like, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of the ORM that Sales has. Mm-hmm. And then, if you already are looking at like ORMs, like I primarily use Bookshelf, and then the the Query Builder next that it kind of comes with, and that still is like you know so pretty naive and in development. Um, 
But as as the person who originally conceived of endpoints that I work on it with, Tyler told me is like if we don't use and build like new tools, like the tooling in Node is always going to be naive. And so it kind of like won me over from being like, why don't we just do everything in in Ruby? So <laughs> so where where did your interest in in APIs come from? I mean, I know that's of course a part of of web development, but. Uh, it's sort of a yeah specializing in that. It's at least that's what it sounds like to me. And then looking at your website, which we need to talk about too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So where did that come from, or how did you sort of fall into that? So, I think I guess I started. I guess I originally started just writing like JavaScript, but not JavaScript for the browser. Like JavaScript, just like procedural programs. Uh, but then, like, I taught myself a ton of Ruby, and I was I was actually very frustrated with Rails at the beginning. I thought it was like frustrating, and like I kind of just really fell in love with Sinatra, which I'm now a core team member of, which is like kind of awesome. Wow. Um, but I, I enjoy Sinatra, and th- I was kind of like growing up in the age where people were just starting to discover like API driven development is a really good idea. And I think knowing that I could, you know, build APIs and then like have a bunch of clients on top of them uh, was just something that like I saw immediately and that like with a good API, like the API was like the the ontology of like whatever like client. Uh-huh, you could. Yeah. And yes, yeah, now I'm gonna go back into my <laughs> philosophy. But APIs they, they seemed like it like a cool like way of like build building that like foundational language from which like an app can emerge. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I also noticed like as, as both someone who was learning and then as a teacher, something that we don't teach a lot of is the client server relationship in HTTP. And it frustrates me to no end. Like, so, like ha- having taught all different levels, a lot of people's understanding of both HTTP and the clients of relationship is just really bad. Um, and so I found that my teaching tended towards that. And then, insofar as it was what I was teaching, it's something that I became like more and more interested in. And it was like that connection is really like API design. And so it, it's something I kind of I fell into. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I guess that's reflected in in your website. If you could maybe explain a little bit, <laughs> well, how did you even have the idea to do this and explain what it is? I think it's it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I, I I don't mean to speak for everyone, but I feel like I do when I say building like a personal site or like portfolio is so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's it's difficult to keep maintained and I knew I had been starting to do a lot of more events a lot more volunteering a lot more talking and I was like I need to like record all of this stuff and so there's actually a, a previous incantation of my website uh, it's called Hey Ashley Ashley and basically I wrote a little intro and then I got bored and so I just dumped a bunch of <laughs> JSON on the page in like tiny font and just like never changed it. <laughs> and so people were like, this is really weird, but it's like kind of cool. It's in JSON. And I was like, oh, uh, I just like didn't finish this because I just like couldn't figure out, like it was just not going to be maintainable. And so I stopped. <laughs> and so whenever 
I've like been thinking about doing a personal site. I was just like, okay, I need to make it so that it's easy for me to update. Like I just need it to be easy. And so I was like, okay, I have a bunch of things that are all of like certain types. I need to be able to just like make a list and then like search for whatever type it is and then point it out. And then I don't know, just to me it was like, yeah, of course I'm going to make an API. Um, like these are all like instances and I was like, these are all resources. And then I was like, oh, huh. You know, people in programming, whenever they're interviewing you and stuff, are always trying to test whether or not you can program, which is like really a terrible way to start a relationship with someone who might be your employee. Um, they're like, we don't believe you that you can program. So I was like, okay, why, why say that I'm like really interested in API design when I could just, you know, save myself the trouble of writing some templates and just build an API for myself and let people explore it. Yep. And so that was how this came to be. And so I guess for people who can't see my website, uh, because you're listening to this podcast, basically I created a API explorer for myself and wrote an endpoints API uh, for resources like community, uh, open source projects, writing, etc. And so you can just go in there and do slash you know, community and see all of my presentations, all of the meetups I've organized, all that sort of stuff in, uh, in the JSON API standard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's totally awesome. <laughs> so, Very nice. It's, it's cheeky, but it, I mean, it was also like a defense mechanism, honestly, for people who would be like, well, like, prove to me that you can do this. And like, especially coming from a consulting company, a lot of the stuff I had written was proprietary. So... I needed something to be like, okay, here. And then if I was going to talk about this crazy framework, I had to at least prove that you could write something in it. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So is the site itself, um, is it open source too? Yep. Everything is open okay. source. Oh, yeah, of course. Does the right fork man GitHub? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, recently, as I don't know, Scott Hanselman like, found it and like retweeted it. And a bunch of people are like, can I use this as my own? And I was like, yes, please do it. Fork it away. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm happy that it's done. I, I basically always make everything open source. I'm probably one of those people, uh, like I, I don't clean things up before I put them open source. They just start public and you can look at all of my terrible code. That's fine. We all know that all of us write terrible code. I'm there just not <laughs> Yeah, but that's good because then at least you publish and most people never get there because they always wait until it's perfect, which it never is, and then nothing happens. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, awesome. I have, yeah, I have, I have programming to thank for like me being a recovering perfectionist. Oh my goodness, it was, it was so bad for so long, and like what I realized is like by doing things out in the open all the time, like it's exactly that. Like at least you have something out there, mm -hmm. and people, people are more likely to criticize and edit something than they are to create something, and so it's, it's, it's actually really amazing. Like after open sourcing. I, I mean, I guess it was open from the beginning, but with my portfolio being open source, you can like look at the repository. I think I have like ten plus unique contributors who are just like fixing typos for me and stuff. <laughs> Great. I love it. I'm just like, yeah, definitely, no problem. A lot of people like will DM me, being like, "Do you want to just fix this? Do you want to have like someone's like weird commit on your portfolio?" I was like, "No way. It's all about community. I want I want tons of people to contribute to this. I don't want to have to fix it." <laughs> Very cool. So this uses the framework that you discussed earlier, right? It does. Okay. Yes. And what was the name of it again? Endpoints. Endpoints. Okay. 
perfect name too. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right, so we diverged there a little bit. So where where are we now in your your career? I guess What's you story. Um, so we're actually pretty far along. Uh, Boku. Uh, I left Boku in March, and then I joined Mozilla, the Mozilla Foundation, working on their endpoint uh, on their um, on their webmaker team. Uh, and so I was really excited about that because. As, as it's probably clear from this story, I'm like really passionate about education and community. And it, it, it has been a little bit frustrating. I haven't said anything about like some of the, the sad portions of this story, but the, my desire to, to do public, like low cost education is something that I continue to try to do and have not really found a place where I've been able to do that. Um, And that's been very frustrating. And so when I left Boku, there was like a question of like, do I continue to try and maintain being a teacher and doing education and community as part of my role? Or do I just become just like a developer and I do the education stuff on the side? And I felt like that was what it was going to have to be. And then, you know, the Mozilla Foundation approached me and it seemed like it would be like a really good match. Uh, because they wanted to do education stuff, uh, and they also were doing development stuff. Mm. So that that was like a, a nice idea, but unfortunately, it was just like not not necessarily how it was going to be able to play out working for them. Okay, can you explain a little bit the um, the 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 education part that you had? wanted to do and then didn't work out what what is missing there or what's not working about it as far as um i can't remember what you said how it's you mean like kind of like across these jobs no the um, <laughs> you were wanting to um maybe it is but what you were saying um, you wanted to do sort of a low um not low income but a something that yes Public. low cost there you go yeah. so i mean some things that i've like very much struggled with so so Web education and programming education in general is something that's kind of, it's not new, but it's going through like a phase right now, a, a phase of growth. And like a lot of people haven't completely figured out how to do it. And I just feel like very strongly that this stuff needs to be open and public. And like a lot of people are concerned about like, how do you make that profitable? How do you make money from that? And I've always said like, it's always about, curation and delivery and that the content um should be open and free always um and there's just been conflict in that in that area and with the mozilla foundation it was interesting because that conflict didn't exist but then there was the trick of because those values were swapped um you know a lot of uh like the the need for me to behave to perform just as a developer uh And not be able to explore some of the other things, like basically that was like inverted, and so there's like not as much time for me to be able to exercise like a larger role. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Exercise a larger role in. So so being able to uh, so the the trick here I think generally is like being an educator and an engineer at the same time is like really all about balance. Yeah. And. I'm not sure anyone has found that balance yet because to be an educator, you need to keep your skills up to date. 
you need to be constantly practicing. And then also to be an engineer, you need to be able to like focus on like exactly what you're working on, kind of like have no interruptions, like, uh, and then you have to context switch between those two. Yeah. Uh, and that just becomes extremely difficult and being an organization that can, that can, you know, be able to support like successfully, uh, that kind of role is, it's just very, very hard, I think. So was at Mozilla, was it more skewed towards the education part then? And you didn't have No, it's time? actually more skewed towards the engineering part because the Mozilla Foundation has like a very small development team and a very large education team. Oh, okay. So it, it, in that sense, it was somewhat inverted. Oh, okay, now I get it. All right. So they had like a greater need for, for developers when yeah, you joined. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you... Um, You've recently been speaking at conferences. Is that is that something new, or have you been doing that for a while as part of your education um, interest? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so my officially, basically, my first conference talk was at JSConf US this year. Okay. Uh, however, the talk that I gave came from being invited to the University of Amsterdam last year in the in the summer uh, to to give to teach for a week and then they were like we do like a speaker series at the end of every week like can you like talk for an hour about something and I was like oh no what am I going to talk about uh, <laughs> and because this was a program for teaching humanities students how to code and because I have like a very interdisciplinary background I kind of started this talk about abstraction and like different attitudes on abstraction like across the humanities and like what that can mean for how we teach programming. And so I gave that talk, like I think it's a June to last year. And then I was like, oh, that went pretty well. I was like, maybe I'll submit these to some conferences. And basically every conference I submitted to accepted it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. Nice. <laughs> no, 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 stop, stop. <laughs> Which I mean, it's like, that's like the stages of, of like speaker, being a speaker, right? It's like you get excited about idea, you write a talk, you submit, and then you get accepted and you're like excited for like one minute. And then it's just like existential dread for like a few months until you're supposed to give the talk. Um, I'm getting nervous and preparing. Uh, but I really love uh, like public speaking. I like, I like talking to people and uh, being able to speak at conferences I think has been also like kind of like really like found it like formative for me because I think I felt for a very long time, especially when you start your career as somebody who is teaching beginners, I felt for a long time that I didn't necessarily have anything to say to people who weren't beginners. And when I started giving this talk, even though this talk involves talking about teaching beginners, um, I, I've found that like people are like very interested and it seems to be a perspective that a lot of people aren't hearing and want to hear. And so that's, it's helped a lot of my imposter syndrome. <laughs> that's awesome. That's good. I also like the idea of just being able to like quote Carl Sagan and Martin Heidegger and Thomas Kuhn to like a group of developers. <laughs> Is I, mean, I don't know, development kind of thinks that like development is like the hardest, best thing you can do, right? And I'm like, but wait, there's like so much more other interesting things that we can pull into this. And so I, I enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All, All right. right. And go ahead. No, go, go ahead. No, I was just, um, so that, uh, so now you're at, uh, at Mozilla and 
then I believe you were approached by NPM. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, and so I was approached by NPM and, uh, I don't know when this will be heard, but, uh, I'm really excited because the, the role is going to involve a lot of interacting with people, answering questions. And so in that sense, it's, it's a very much like a teaching role, but also like doing documentation, um, and just like managing and fostering community. And that's something I'm really excited about. Uh, I've been a little bit nervous about it because I, I fear that people will be like, Oh, this is your job now. You're not a real developer. And I, I'm excited to take this role and then continue to try and profess to the community that these types of things are still technical and still important. Um, and and make sure and, and try and like shift attitudes in that way because I think that as a community we need things like better documentation we need better communication strategies and I think a lot of developers shy away from roles like this because they're going to be undervalued. Hmm. I think well maybe that's one part but I think a lot of them are just scared and they don't know they couldn't do it <laughs> yeah, because that's uh, fair. it actually. <laughs> Well, I mean, from everything that you've said and, and knowing, you know, from teaching or trying to teach people things, it's extraordinarily hard. So I think most people just can't do it. But uh, does that mean, <laughs> does that mean um, you, I mean, community building, does that mean you're going to run um, events and things like that as well? Or you're going to be speaking or w what exactly does that all mean? So there's definitely going to be events and speaking. Um, it could be like, you know, doing on-site trainings uh, or, you know, it could be tutorials that are done at like conferences or workshops. Um, so it, a lot of it is that this is, there's not anybody else really doing this role right now at NPM. Uh, and so kind of exploring also like what are the options there? What are the okay, things that we yeah. can do? Hmm. Um, so are you going to be traveling a lot then? <laughs> I will probably continue to travel as much as I travel now. Hmm. <laughs> but potentially not as much as I traveled last year. I traveled last year so much that people had actually thought I had moved to either Boston <laughs> or Amsterdam. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. People were like, oh, welcome back to New York. And I'm like, I didn't really officially leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, I really enjoy the travel. I could there's there's really no substitute for for gaining perspective than traveling and talking to people who come from like very different like experiences than you, uh, yeah. and like just from seeing the differences between like the United States and like the European developer communities, I think it has been very interesting. <laughs> oh, so how so from your perspective, how are they different? Oh, I'm going to be like a terrible American here. <laughs> is, is there anything else? Is that redundant? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so there is a level of, and this, again, this is like purely coming from my like very biased experience probably because I've only been to like certain European like conferences and certain U United States ones. But there definitely like seems to be just like a base level difference in competitiveness and cooperativeness, mm. uh, and th the the sense of commu like 
generally speaking, I'd say European conferences feel less competitive and more cooperative. Uh, and like, I've just like experienced a lot less harassment in all of my experience in Europe than I have at American conferences, which has been like actually generally kind of terrible. Hmm. Um, so I, how, how to account for that? I, I can't be sure. Um, but I mean, from what I've seen, so you, what kind of con conferences did you go to in Europe? You were at JSConf EU, you were at uh, the Nightly Build, that's actually Project, where we both saw you talk. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> what else? And then also, like, uh, and again, that, that program at the University of Amsterdam and oh, like, yeah. some of the steps around there. Uh, I've also spent a fair amount of time uh, in Manchester and over the UK. One of like the first things I did, kind of as a, on on the side, uh, when I was teaching at the Flatiron School, was uh, I volunteered a, as a, a mentor at lots of hackathons for kids, and then I was invited to give tutorials on GitHub and Git, like all over the UK, hmm. and then uh, I was like a judge at one of the the hackathons there, and so. Um, I, I traveled around a lot there doing those tutorials. And I mean, something that I like really loved that I saw there was uh, the use, of, at least in the, the communities I was in, the use of GitHub was like not very common. Like a lot more people were using like SVN or Bitbucket. And so like mentors and like other people, like other adults were like really eager to like sit in on the tutorial and learn as well. Whereas like I know in certain communities that like, not knowing something that somebody else was teaching would be something that you would try and hide. Right. Uh, but like yeah. in these communities, it, it didn't feel like that. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, I, I can definitely say that you, you've been only to the, to the very cool conferences. Because <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, there's also I mean, conferences that suck over here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, part of that might be also like as a speaker, I only apply to conferences that pay for speaker travel and lodging. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of like see this as labor and work and that there should be some sort of payment for that. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. Not that like you should be paid money to <laughs> like go, but like some sort yeah. of like arrangement there. And uh, it, it, it may just be that those conferences uh, are the good ones. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Maybe I mean that that might be one indication. I mean it's also uh, yeah it's also specific people who do organize it and I mean you know when you know that JSConfU for instance like they they are you know just like the JSConf in the US they're like a non-profit like they don't make any money from it and everything right. just goes into the conference and they're very aware of community and supporting a community and it's not about getting like names so to speak to speak there it's more about mm -hmm. interesting topics it doesn't matter if you are a first-time speaker or a 10-time speaker and stuff like that and that's automatic there are a lot of good indications <laughs> good indicators that this is yeah. a, a very cool conference so yeah. js Confu is was just absolutely awesome like that the whole set of js Confu, css conf reject yeah amazing really one of my favorite conference experiences ever yeah was <laughs> best for me as well yeah. <laughs> awesome yeah okay so <laughs> so how long did you actually Uh, so how long were you at um, Mozilla for how long? I have to look at the calendar. It's October. I guess six months. Oh, okay. That was quick. 
Yeah, it was yeah. a little quick. Yeah, <laughs> a little quick, and now it's NPM. Cool, that's awesome. Well, um, actually, so you are uh, you are the co the colleague of our co-host from our other podcast, because uh, Rockbot is actually our co-host on the other. Oh, podcast really? Yeah, that's awesome. She's the best. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's really super great. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So are you going to I actually um, moving somewhere or are you staying in New York? I am not. I am staying in New York. Yeah, they're, they're pretty important. good about remote remote workers, right? Yeah. I've been working remote now, I guess, since working at Boku. Uh, mm -hmm. And I actually really enjoy it. I think it's good. Yeah. I particularly like it because I'm able to, like, during lunch, like, go for a run or there something like that. I also have, like, very specific dietary things, so it's, like, just a lot easier to be able to cook at my house all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, very, very nice. Um, a lot of interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that website, is, when I first saw that, I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> just to have that idea, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of timely because you were you were kind of looking into APIs and and stuff like that just recently, right? Yeah, I wanted to actually it was all about JSON API and and what way to go and uh, um, yeah, when I saw that, I was like, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been doing a lot of API work in general for years, but um, <clears throat> I like what they what they did in with Ember Data and so on and. Basically, the things that you explained on how um, JSON API sort of gets rid of the bike shedding. So I'm very much on board with that concept. Yeah, I really like yeah. it. I mean, it, it also I think can make your requests like significantly more efficient. Yep. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, okay. and I was also wondering because uh, you were saying uh, like you. Something about that you that people might come to you now when you're when you're at npm and they're kind of saying you're not a real developer anymore because you're just doing community work and stuff like that. But I was thinking you were saying that you're also going to write a documentation, right? Like technical documentation. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. Yeah. So to me, that in order to be able to do that, you have to be quite deep in the technology, though, right? Oh, I so I completely agree. I mean, I'm I I am expressing nervousness. Uh, because of like an imposter syndrome, but I, as as someone who's taught, I also know like to write documentation and to teach like your understanding of a topic needs to be like significantly more deep than what a, like you know a classic practical knowledge of it would be. Yeah, right. Because you not sure. only have to know how to use it, but you have to know why it works. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you might have to dive into the code and see how it was written or something. You know, exactly. To understand it. Yeah. There's actually also this interesting story about uh, a very important community member from the Ember community. Uh, his name is Trek, you know? Oh, you know? I know Trek. Yeah, Trek's Trek. great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know him, but I heard him on podcasts and stuff. And I kind of... I, I, He's I, pretty good in real life, too. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> um, no, but I, I kind of... Uh, I noticed him when he wrote an article about... So that was pretty early in Ember. Well, I... Like it was pre Ember 1.0 days, and it was during a time where Ember was, <clears throat> I think, 
uh, was, yeah, there was still a lot of churn, like API churn, like, and stuff like that. And he... What do you mean? There's not a time like that anymore? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's not, it's not as crazy. Ember, I love the Ember people. <laughs> no, no, it's, they're awesome. But no, but I think now it's pretty, I mean, I'm totally in awe of how, how they are man managing their API and how they are kind of now using Semver to, uh, you know, to, to and, and how they document it and how they... Did you they, see the announcement that now they're no longer shipping any functionality in Ember without, like, full guides and docs? That's, yeah. It's amazing. Like, this yeah, is... Yeah, yeah. I'm totally... Dan just said that. He works on JSON API, too. Who? So. Uh, Dan Gebhardt or oh, DGeb. Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. So... Yeah, so I'm totally, totally in awe of that. I mean, they, they are... They're literally the best in doing this, like how they do their releases and their feature releases and deprecating the API and documenting it, and all that stuff. And uh, nobody, he, he, Trek wrote this article about there was lots of confusion about how to write Ember, and he wrote this long rant kind of article where he was explaining how you would build uh, Ember. Uh, applications and it was it's so far like it's like two years ago or something like that i don't mm -hmm. even remember what it really was but he was like yeah and you just have to do that and it's just do that and then do that and this component and you put that and it was really interesting to read i didn't really know exactly what he was talking about but but it was it it, it kind of gave me a feeling of oh he really knows what he's talking about and he um and and now if i wanted to write an ember application i could kind of take this article and kind of go along with this article and try to to put together an ember app at that back at that point then right, i kind yeah. of i kind of found out that he was actually um that he did a lot of the documentation i think he also wrote that in the article that he did a lot of the documentation for ember and in order to be able to do that he had to go through the code and like go and just comment the code and what the code does and all that da, da, da. and that was uh yeah, so he got an amazing understanding of how Ember works, and he's one of the most important people of the community now. Like, documenting, still documenting, I think, also a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know he's definitely doing a lot of documentation. I know I was working on an Ember app uh, a couple months ago, and we were chatting over over Twitter about it, and he was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. Like, this stuff isn't X, and this isn't Y." And like, I think they were a little worried about the status of the docs and the guides and. I think this their new commitment to like not shipping things uh, without updated docs and guides is like really awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they even have a sort of a sub a sub core team just just for that now. And right. I think that came out of the the stress of releasing 2.0 because they set themselves a an actual date and uh, yeah. some things suffered there. Yeah. yeah but I think Trex Trex um, he also has an interesting. Um, sort of viewpoint or he makes this statement that, you know, a lot of people say the way the way to get into open source is to start by by writing documentation. And he doesn't really agree with that because to write good documentation you have to have an extraordinary understanding of, you know, the library or the application or whatever it is at hand. And as a beginner you don't have that. So oh, completely. It's, it's not that easy, or not as easy as people make it sound. You know? Right. The yeah. one thing I do, like, I guess contributing open source, I think sometimes people conflate, like, contributing to documentation and contributing typo fixes. Yeah. Because um, yeah. <laughs> those are not the same, <laughs> nearly, no. but, like, they kind of are. Uh, 
I think it's something that, that is very good for learning, though, and I always encourage my students to do this, is no matter how small the thing you learned, um, write a tutorial on how to do it as like a blog post. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because first off, there's going to be people looking for the, how to do those tiny little things. Uh, and then additionally, that just helps reinforce your learning. Um, it, it, it's so fun to think like how many times, I know so many developers who are like, it's really great like when I when I googled for like a question and then like the first thing that pops up is my own blog post from three years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's um, true. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that's useful. But yeah, I, I think I would agree with Trek. I mean, documentation is hard because you're also speaking to such a diverse audience. You're you're talking to beginners to who are like beginners to your framework or they're beginners to JavaScript or and like where do you start? Uh, with your like kind of like a learning track there, mm. um, like generated API docs or generated API docs. But when you start talking about guides and how to organize those, like having like a, a very close like relationship with your community is something that you have to do, and you always have to be very responsive to that. Mm -hmm. So, are you concerned that you you won't have the time to, you know? invest in, in becoming or keeping up your technical skills in order to write good documentation or do you are you concerned that people you know falsely would think that oh yeah you're writing docs and you know things like that and you're not a real developer in air quotes yeah right um, so I mean when you take on a job where your primary like activity is not programming there's always an element of having to be disciplined about making sure you continue to do that stuff. I don't think that's going to be terribly difficult for me. I think my biggest fear is actually like I show up to conferences all the time and people ask me if I'm a marketer and now I'm going to oh, have wow. to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's really confusing and it's kind of complicated and like this is not a problem that necessarily like a dude would ever like think about. Um, right. So I don't know like that's kind of where I'm at like I, I mean, I think I'm going to be fine. You know, the people who, who matter don't mind and the people who mind don't matter. So, yeah. but it, as somebody who it's, like, yeah, does still, a lot of a, feminism yeah. and like wants to be like, this is what a developer looks like. It's, yeah. it's interesting to have like a title that's like in the marketing department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but so. it's to say just yes is actually not actual, accurate. I mean, you would have to say alt. Yes. Also. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> well, right. I mean, what we need to understand is that titles don't like, really matter. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the community is moving that direction, or at least the part of the community that I associate myself with a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's still like a really strong tradition in, in like the programming industry of like lead developer, senior developer, junior, like what's the difference between a developer and an engineer? That's mm -hmm. people will, people will fight about that on Twitter forever. Yeah. So, yeah. um, there's like a, there's definitely an element of like titles don't matter, but unfortunately, like people make snap judgments, and sometimes those snap judgments really are important. And so ways ways to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, it always always depends on the context with the title yeah. things. Totally. Yeah. All right, I think we're ready for the picks. Yep. Oh my goodness, the picks! <laughs> <laughs> Exciting. It's so funny when I was when I was reading about preparing for this, I was like, "What is a pick? I don't know what that is." <laughs> <laughs> and like through context, I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it." <laughs> yeah. It has been. It has become this this kind of this kind of uh, standard word for. I, I don't know. I kind of 
So the picks actually, for me, the first time I heard about the picks, it was on JS JavaScript Jabber. They oh, yeah. always do the picks at the end. Everybody has a pick or two or three. <laughs> and uh, and so I got basically got, the, so I stole it from there basically. And then there was another podcast that was called, ugh, totally forgot the name of it. Um, not even sure if it still exists, but that was basically just consisted of picks basically it was like a short interview at the beginning and then there was just like a back and forth like the host and the guest they were like my first pick is da 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 and they would talk about that one pick and then the next and they would go back and forth and that's kind of, and i really always enjoyed it enjoyed that because it gives you so much like context about you know first of all you find out about cool stuff and then you have all this context on that person what they like you know and what they kind of yeah, I, th I think, I, I mean, it makes lots of sense. I think it's really cool. <laughs> cool. So uh, let's do, um, so how did we do it the last time, Henning? Did we go? I believe I started. Okay, so we just go like. Uh, oh, I did all three plus the music and then Okay. the next person, yeah. Okay, cool. So you so want me to start? Yep. All right, uh, first pick is... Uh, Ember Global Meetup. Um, this is something I really, really enjoy, and I um, am very happy that it's being put on by Ember Sherpa. And uh, essentially, what it is, it's a it's a big, um, yeah, online meetup or kind of like in the webinar format, but uh, um, a little more interactive. <clears throat> and um, there've been two so far, and he seems to be doing it sort of every two weeks. And uh, the reason I, I appreciate this is, I guess, the word I'm looking for is because um, geographically there is nothing close to me. I think I'd have to drive to Brussels or Munich, and that's like four or five hours or more. <clears throat> Not really practical. So mm -hmm. this is uh, very cool that this is happening. And um, the second pick is this thing called Nested Loops. And... Uh, <laughs> I think you guys both, well, obviously, Khalil, yes, you performed it. <laughs> but um, essentially what this is for people that have not seen it yet, and you should probably pause, go to the show note links and, and go watch it, is um, I don't know how to describe it, but sort of like the nerdiest thing <laughs> in a really good way that I've ever seen. <laughs> so it's um, basically it's... it's um, a song, you know, performed by a JavaScript developer, written by the brother of a, no, yeah, the music written by your brother, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's brother of a JavaScript developer. And then another JavaScript developer who performed the whole thing on, I think, the audio API, right? No, yeah. So, so, so actually, so the, so Jan was the guy who, who uh, programmed the launch pad uh, so that we could, trigger the videos in the browser okay and play the music in the browser as well like he did something crazy i actually totally forgot to, i had to like i meant to ask him about it he was he said that he had to re-implement the video tag or something like that because <laughs> the, the actual video tag from like the, from the browser didn't really there was something like there was too much lag it, it did something that created lag when we were mm -hmm. triggering the videos so he had to kind of like the browser had to download all the different video snippets and then stitch it together to one big video or something like that. So something crazy. I have to ask him. I didn't. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, so he did the programming in it. Boris, uh, my brother, did actually, he did the music, and he also did most of the triggering of the videos during the performance. Right, But, yeah. but Jan also did some of it. Yeah. And you then performed uh, the, the lyrics. And you wrote the, the lyrics too, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So essentially what it is, it's a, it's a live, you know, music video performance at the conference that is, uh, yeah, all about JavaScript, basically. Yeah, JavaScript also, also starring Ashley, actually, as well. Oh, yes, that's right. That's yep. right. <laughs> I actually missed the live performance yes, due to so a sad. situation <laughs> with my housing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember walking into the conference and I was like, is that my face on your shirt? And they were like, yes. Also, you've missed a whole song where you argue with Douglas Crawford. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah, so that, yeah, that, was, that was really, I don't know. I, I watched it quite a few times, and uh, it was very, very enjoyable. So thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, third pick is, um, oh, a talk that uh, Raquel gave, which is... Uh, Robots and JavaScript. She gave that at Strange Loop. I think she's given it a few times, but I had never seen it. And um, hardware is something that I'm like, yeah, not really super into. I guess um, it was always something that uh, was hard for me to understand, and I didn't didn't really like it. But the way she presented it made makes it seem so approachable. And uh, really just wanted me to go and buy a bunch of stuff and start playing with it. So <laughs> I can highly recommend uh, watching that, that talk. And uh, my music pick is something I bumped into from my collection, really, really old. I think it's mid-90s. It's uh, All Right by Jamiroquai. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think the genre is acid jazz. <laughs> um, I don't know. Just a song again. You know, I just like stuff that sounds good to me, and that's what it is. So there you go. Cool. <clears throat> Jamiroquai is cool. I, yeah, I remember listening to that stuff back in the nineties as well. Um, right. So I'm gonna go next. Uh, so mm -hmm. what? Uh, what is that pick that I have? Oh, yeah. So there's actually I just read an interesting comment on a GitHub issue. Um, so there was a guy. He uh he oh, i think it's a, a guy i don't actually know a person <laughs> and and they uh what wrote asked basically asked the react js team like how do you deal with web components uh, do you because react obviously uses components or their own or own style of components in order mm. to build uis and um so this person wanted to know um if they are kind of moving towards web components as the standard gets a little bit more fledged out or something like that. <clears throat> and was it was a very long, like lots of paragraphs about web components and why he, that person thinks uh, this could be a good idea or not a good idea. Blah, 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 blah. And then there was one of the, a person from the, from the React team responding, <clears throat> which was also, I just found a very interesting uh, take and uh or just an interesting information just to have and basically the gist was like they they are not going to move forward to, to uh implement web components because it's not as kind of functional as they would 
they like it and they kind of were and also hint they also hinted to um talking to other framework developers and they feel the same way and <clears throat> and i just find that found that very interesting and to get the react team's perspective on this because the whole they like react.js really got has a had a lot of influence on how javascript framework developers are thinking about building ui and it's going towards a much more functional take and it's a little bit it, it it's like it clean it's kind of the cleaning up the whole architecture and how you how you interact with the dom and and kind of all this kind of stuff kind of is solved in a new way and um and it seems like they're totally like like not interested in web components which is very interesting because there's this whole other side of it where people or browser vendors are trying to figure out web components and google is pushing them with polymer and stuff like that and <clears throat> yeah and it's going to be interesting to see how where this is going to end up because also web components seem to be still in flux a lot and it's not clear who is going to implement how much of it and all this kind of stuff. So that was interesting. I definitely recommend reading that. And <laughs> then, uh, then I recommend uh, as soon as the JSConf EU videos are out to, to definitely what to, you know, pick the ones that you think sound interesting and watch them because there was a lot of good stuff going on. Also re reject JS and CSS conf. Um, there is CSSConf actually already has some of the videos up. Um, there was this one talk that was really popular in CSSConf, which was called um, Interoperable CSS, I think, or was it CSS Modules by Glenn Mattern. And uh, so that's very interesting, the whole kind of his ideas behind how to um, have a, a build stuff for CSS that makes it much easier to write CSS because you don't have to really think about the whole namespacing issues and just have the machines do the namespacing stuff for you. And yeah, it solves a few problems. It's pretty cool. And uh, so the third pick that I have is um, Metalsmith.io, which is Metalsmith is just a node package or a node module that um, that you can use to create static websites or documentation or well anything that ends up in HTML or or text actually and um, you can it's like a pipeline that you can run any kind of stuff through like handlebars um, J templates you can run markdown through it and it would just generate whatever you want on the other side and uh, I mean, there have been tools like that. I mean, you can do the same thing, for instance, that Jekyll, Jekyll does mm -hmm. or, or, yeah, or other, you know, static site generators. It just seems it's a little bit more flexible. Like it's, it's, it's less. And at the same time, it, it, and it's very unopinionated about what you do, what comes out on the other end. So I really, I'm currently trying to do, to build my own site with it to have like a little blog on my page and stuff like that. And um, and it's actually quite fun to figure all this stuff out. And it has been um, out there for a while already. So it's, uh, it's a pretty mature little piece of software. So that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, and uh, the, my music pick. So I couldn't think of anything else because recently I've been just listening to my brother's music and uh, music that I made or my wife made or whatever. <laughs> so there was nothing like on my on my mind that that was outside of that. But most of it is unreleased, so I can't really pick it. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm but I'm picking I'm picking my brother's music. There is a SoundCloud account that with like pretty old tracks, though, so that it's not like the new stuff that he's currently working on, which is also, which like of course he he's been evolving and stuff, but uh, there is some some cool electronic music on there, so I'm gonna pick that for today. Cool. Yeah. Does that mean it's my turn? It's your turn. All right. Um, so I I tried to think a lot about this with the picks because I was like really excited. Um, so I think my first pick is going to be a book, uh, and this book was written by a neuroscientist, computer scientist, and a behavioral psychologist, uh, and the book is called Inside Jokes. Uh, the primary author is Daniel Dennett, who's like somewhat well-known, uh, in the field of neuroscience, but the idea here is that he, he, he often speaks about, like, we understand that things don't have uh, don't inherently have the way we sense them inside them as objects. Like the idea of like a strawberry is not inherently sweet. A strawberry and the sugar inside it tastes sweet to us because we have evolved in such a way that we need to be attracted to sugar because it provides high energy. So, and then these are also true of the ideas of like things that look sexy. Um, or, you know, things that look strong, these sorts of things. Uh, but then there was always this question of if, if we can understand this kind of like backwards nature of how our perception imbues things with certain traits, what is, what is the point of humor? What is like the evolutionary point of humor? Like why, do, why are things funny and what does that mean? And he takes like an amazing systems approach to talking about this. And in the book, it basically... The TLDR is that when we laugh at a joke, it is because we have created a frame under which we understand something like a context or a closure, and that we laugh when we realize that there's an element of that closure or context that's incorrect. And so in a certain sense, humor is a way we correct and like garbage collect like incorrect contexts around ideas that we understand and know. Um, That's and it's like it's like super brilliant and fun uh, and he's an excellent writer so I'm gonna pick that book that's <laughs> <Cool. laughs> a first one you know as like just like to start off light yeah. um. <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you like watch funny things or or um, I don't know Comedy Central or whatever I don't know what what you watch but is that now <laughs> under the light of how the mechanics of all this work or the you know the things you've read about it, because when you when you become an expert in something, you can't you never see it the same way again, right? Is that the how it is for you now? I guess that's true. Um, <laughs> although I don't know, I I don't think that it's like paralyzed me. I certainly enjoy things that are funny a lot now. Um, I do think, and this might not be a result of this book, but just might be a result of like becoming older and like working in this industry. But I am aware of when people laugh at things that I don't think are funny, what that reveals about what they believe. Ah. So to like turn that on its head a little bit. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, for my second pick, um, I'll like go to like the completely other end of the spectrum. And so this was debuted at uh, JSConf EU, uh, but it's called Greenkeeper IO, and I am like super, super excited about it. Uh, so, did you guys see this be presented, or no? But I, but uh, Jan, um, Jan Lennart, he actually to told me about it, and I also thought okay. it was an amazing idea. Yeah, yeah, I briefly so... heard about it, but um, <laughs> don't know in deep in detail what it is. So please. So the, their slogan is always up to date: npm dependencies, zero hassle. Um, but generally speaking, uh, what this does is it's a, like a, a global package that you install and you kind of initiate it for a project and then it's going to watch your package.json uh, and when there are new updated dependencies, it's going to send you a pull request to your package. Um, so I really love the idea that it's not going to just like automatically update something for me. I really like the pull request method. Uh, and just as somebody who maintains a bunch of stuff that's open source that like is may or may not be like as looked on a lot, uh, th there's like this thing that happens where suddenly like all of your dependencies are out of date. I've done this a ton in Ruby, um, and then also this happens a ton in JavaScript as well. And so having something that will like at least even just remind you that something new has come out, whether or not you even use the PR, I think is super super helpful. Um, Dependencies are, are are really tricky, and if you let it go too long, like you can end up in a real mess. And so, cool. um, it, it just seems like extremely useful, and like the the way you interact with it, uh, I think had they put a lot of thought into it, and uh, it, it's the user experience is great. Yeah, it's awesome, and that's and it's called Greenkeeper because basically, uh, it also if, if you have Travis set up and stuff, it runs your tests. Right, mm -hmm. and then since it's a pull request, uh, you can just when when it's green, you can just go ahead and merge it, and it's all good. And uh, and if it's not green, then you have to you can go create an issue or just you know when whenever whenever you're ready, you can take care of the whatever breaks it, you know, right? The cause, and then yeah. So that's I mean it's just amazing because that's exactly. I think that is the biggest downside on this kind of tiny modules approach mm -hmm. um, to have a lot of tiny modules. <laughs> <That's what's going. laughs> right. Little, tiny, all these tiny little moving pieces. Yeah, exactly. And you don't know necessarily <clears throat> when they're being updated and maybe you have like 50 of them in there and you don't, you just like, there's no way really, if, especially if you're doing an open source project on the side to, to know when anything is updated and then, in this case, so if you have Greenkeeper, it's just somebody just does the job, like a machine does the job for you. And that's, that's reminding really cool. you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the hardest exactly. part is having to go through and check and see. And this is really doing all of that work. Yeah. It does other stuff too. And that's like icing on the cake. But just, just something that pings me and goes, hey, there's a new thing. You should yeah. check it. You should check it. Because yeah. <laughs> like trying to manually do that for like 50 repositories is. It's just it basically it just doesn't happen and, and exactly, you end up yeah. in like a, a bad position. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and just like Travis or GitHub, it's free for open source. So that's really awesome. Yeah. And it it itself, the the command line utility is open source, which is also really cool. Right. So yeah. And it's coming from the team of people at Hoodie. And 
they were, those are people are great people. So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. And then I think my final thing, my final pick, uh, is going to be something that I don't know too much about, but found out about at JSConfU, and I'm really excited about. And it's a conference that's called SquatConf. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, the the idea behind SquatConf is. It's not that it's a conference necessarily about squats, but it's it's a tech conference that tries to run on a significantly less like kind of like capitalist pattern, where it's donation based. It's like very very cheap. Um, they're still like attracting people who are giving good talks, uh, but it's kind of like stripping away that like kind of very fancy like environment element. Um, and in that sense, makes it like significantly more accessible to other people. Uh, and then, like, kind of in addition, it it, it brings in like a political element. Uh, and what's cool about this is like the tech center, like generally tends to be like libertarian leaning. And so, to find like a community kind of like within the tech industry that leans in like the exact opposite direction, like more towards like a communist idea um, is really exciting to me because that's the ideology I tend to like be drawn to. Uh, so bringing those two things together is nice. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, so, so do you openly say that you're leaning towards a communist ideology? Is that, is that, Oh yeah. <laughs> is, do you get I'm problems, problems um, for that in America? So, in my reject JS Conf talk, and I added this for my to it when I spoke at Nightly Build. Yeah, I I like say that I'm from the United States, but then I have two pictures that I took that's like red spray paint on this blue tile of an anarchy symbol and a hammer and sickle, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm like, but these are more of my red, white, and blue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, somebody, some people in the audience, I had like friends in the audience, and they were like. Yeah, some people were like, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, really, like, upset that I, like, put, like, a hammer and sickle on the screen. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, I don't know. I think the culture is generally that people try not to be highly political. Right. Um, I do try and be highly political because I think everything's political and that in the end it's, like, very important to be paying attention to those things. Mm -hmm. Uh but yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of wish there was more, more critical discussion in that sense, especially in tech. But as I said before, tech tends to generally be leaning like very libertarian. Uh, I mean, if you look at like how startups want to run, generally the policies that they're like trying to push for, um, like the whole like venture capital industry, like yeah, it, it, it's very much of one mind, and so. Uh, oftentimes to take uh, a political statement like stance that's against that is to almost be like how can I like participate in tech mm. and that's oft a question I often ask myself it's like a very interesting one so. I think it would be refreshing to hear to hear something like that so that's why I'm excited about squat comp. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that conversation is like definitely going to happen I think it's really cool yeah. uh, there's yeah. a joke that I make in my talk um about class warfare, because in, in my, the conference talk I've been giving, I uh, cr heavily criticize ES6 classes. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I've been thinking about the next iteration of the talk or like another talk that I'll give that I think I might end up making it significantly more political, but we'll see. Oh, <laughs> cool. So is SquatConf in, in the US or in Europe or 
everywhere? It is not. Um, I, the person I met who is organizing it is from Paris, and we're in the process of organizing the next one. Um, in and Paris? I believe it's going to be in Berlin in uh, April. Okay. And it is going to be kind of paired with uh, this other tech conference that's also like kind of like half tech, half politics. Um, kind of as like a. Oh, is it the, is it the CCC thing? Chaos Computer Club thing, maybe? Um, I don't think so, but I've heard of that, and that's also a cool thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you would, you would love that conference. <laughs> yeah, basically, have to go to this. Oh yeah, this looks great. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, because that's very that's very political. Uh, always has been. It was like kind of like uh, like this group of. I I mean, now I'm just like I have very little knowledge about this, but it's a it's a group from Berlin, I think, at least mm -hmm. Germany, and uh, they called themselves. And I think the, it's the Chaos Computer Club has been, has existed since the early 90s at least something like that and they're like a group of hackers that are also like anarchists or leaning towards communist ideology ideolo ideology what's the ideology ideology <laughs> thank you um <clears throat> yeah and it has been but it has become something bigger and like I think like 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 an institution almost that that is always critical towards a uh, group of people that's definitely critical towards like th how technology is used in certain ways. And like, of course, this whole kind of uh, surveillance issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and they have very interesting people speaking at their conferences and have videos. Uh, you, you actually you can find videos. I think they're all in English. I'm not sure. Uh, well, the other thing I need to do is learn German, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Having been to Germany twice last month, I think, I don't know. Huh. It was a pretty good experience. I probably should learn the language better than I know it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Germans would definitely enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll see. Maybe I can find a link and I'll send it to you. The CCC. Yeah, cool. cool. Um, so I guess it's my music pick now. It is. Right? And as I said before, uh, one of your previous speakers uh, kind of stole my music pick, um, which is the Against Me uh, album, ah, yeah. <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, so I guess what I'll say instead is, um, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but it's like what I'm doing all of my stuff to now. And it's an, a band called Churches. They just uh, released a new album called Every Open Eye, and I'm really enjoying it. What kind of music is it? Uh... There's like an like electronic indie huh. sort of dancey. Um, I think probably what if I I'm just gonna say it, it's it's hipster music. <laughs> 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 As in, I'll just like be self deprecating. There you go. It's hipster music. Yeah. But it's There's nice. I like it. it. Hipsters like <laughs> hipsters often like like really cool stuff like good coffee and like organic food. Like nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. And so do you have a specific track or is it just uh, the album? Mm. I've been listening to the album on a whole. I think I think I like it's like and now I'm like opening it up. I really hope it doesn't start playing. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think I can like the the song Empty Threat, but again, I've only I like just started okay. listening to it like 2 days ago. Okay. So, that's the one that I'm like sticking with right now. 
<laughs> Very nice. It's good for running and programming. So cool. We'll check it out. Yeah. Okay, I think that was it. Uh, I wanna I wanna thank everybody for listening. Uh, you can find all the show notes um, for this episode on descriptive.audio. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit us up on Twitter at descriptivepod or join us in the descriptive Slack chat. The link for that is also on the website. Ashley, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, this was super fun. Thank you so much. Thanks My first a lot. podcast. Yeah, this was fun. Oh, and <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. Yay. Hey, and also, of course, we need to know where can people find you if they want to talk to you, ask you questions, find out more about you. We need that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I am AG underscore D-U-B-S, AG dubs, on Twitter, Freenode, Mozilla IRC. Um, and that's it's almost definitely the best way to get in touch with me. I wouldn't bother with email. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and Henning? I'm H Gladagots on Twitter. Cool. All right. That was it. Bye. Bye. Right. Thank you. Bye.